Okay, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the We're Having a Good Time podcast. I'm Dusty Slay. I'm your host, and I'm here with my wife and co-host, Hannah Hogan. Great to be here. We're doing another late podcast, but this time we're doing a late one on a Tuesday night. So it feels good. It feels like we're really getting on it. We put the kids to bed. We stayed up. And now we're going to do a little podcast. We're working hard. We're middle class. Yeah. We're doing our, yeah. Yeah. We're putting in the work. Mm. Um, so we're very excited to be here. Um, we've had, um, you know, we've had really nonstop visitors with us at our house. We had my mom up, you know, and then my sister and, and then my, my sister and my niece and then my niece for a month. And then Hannah's dad and brother, and then her brother left and her dad stayed for a few more days. So we've had, for, we've had about two months of visitors and we had not been having a lot of visitors prior to that. So it's been great though. Yeah. We really loved it. It felt sad when my dad left, but maybe it's just because my dad left. Well, Yeah. I think that's it. But yeah, I mean, it feels a little empty in the house. It does. It's like I was saying to Hannah, when you're hanging out with, when you have visitors and they stay for a long time, you, you don't get, I don't get tired of them, but I almost like, um, especially if they're not like, they're not here for a long time. They're here for a few days, but like your, your hang is like a nonstop hang, Right, because you're like your time is limited, so you want to spend all your time with them, but you're also like nonstop hanging, so you get tired and you just want to chill out. And I find myself just wanting to look at my phone, and you know, because looking at my phone is like me flipping TV channels now, so I'm like, it's me vegging out, uh, but you don't want to do that because you only have a few days, uh, but then when they're gone you know, they're gone for months and you may not, you know, you won't see them for months. And so it's like, those kind of hangs are hard. It's nice when people live in the same town. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right before my dad left today, I was finishing up an article in the New Yorker and he was just sitting right across from me. And I thought, should I be reading right now? Or (laughs) this is the last moments I'm going to have with my dad, right? You know, for several months, but I, you know, I just felt like, I can read right now, right? Yeah, I mean, well, that's what that's just it, right? You you just when you have limited time, you just want to like really like soak it up and milk it, but it almost it almost can be like you you push it too hard mm-hmm. to where you're not even enjoying the time because you're just like, "Oh no, I need to be up in their business." Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas Rachel was here for a month. So Rachel really just settled in as a member of the household Mm -hmm. but Rachel you know is family but Rachel is also a niece that we were uh you know more or less getting to know not a parent that we've grown up with right you know yeah I shared a lot of silences with Rachel yeah a lot of silences and at first they were a little uncomfortable for me because I don't if there's silence, I feel obliged to fill it. Um, but then I would sort of say to myself, you know what? This is my house. 
if I don't feel like talking or if I don't know what to say, I'm allowed to not know what to say in my own house. Yeah. And, and you know, Rachel might not even wanted to talk. Yeah. You and know? I like that about her. Yeah. But my dad, he'll talk to you. Yeah. And he'll talk to you after that, too. Yeah. I mean, your dad's a talker and I like that. And that's why we get along. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, anytime, you know, anytime I have my relatives come to town and they're here for a few days, it's like, you know, I just want to nonstop hang mm-hmm. because, you know, I don't know when I'll be seeing them again. But you're like, you force it. And I didn't feel like anything was forced no. with your dad. It was a really it good It was hang. lovely. Yeah. It was really lovely. And, I'm, and I miss him. And I'm sad he's gone. And I wish he was still here. And I miss my dad. Yeah. Well, you know, you went a long time without seeing him because of, you know, all the COVID stuff made it hard for him to get down here, made it hard for you to get up there. And uh, so you went a long time without seeing him. Mm -hmm. So I like that you miss your dad. Yeah. It shows you that I'm not such a stone cold B-I-T-C-H out here. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's not what I would say anyway. But yeah, um, you know, shows real feelings. Yeah. And it's good. I try to be strong all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. Well, um, so it's been great. We had a great time with your brother. Your brother lives in Beijing. China. China. Mm -hmm. And he flew over um, from China, 15-hour flight. Yeah, he did. And and he was able to come down here for a couple of days. He spent uh, time around Canada. And I took him to the East Room the open mic in um, here in Nashville. And your brother is a PhD and he lives in Beijing teaching English, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, so very smart guy, very well-read guy, Canadian living in China, comes to America, goes to an open mic. Uh, the host goes on stage. The host, who's my friend, very nice guy, and uh, I'm told that he says this because people started to get so offended at jokes that there started to be fights in there. But Jake, Hannah's brother, doesn't know this background. And so the guy goes up on stage and he goes, all right, here are the rules for the podcast. For the show. For the open mic, yeah. And he says, uh, the open mic is a free speech zone. You can say whatever you want in here. And Jake, who's pretty serious, takes that and makes a note and then goes on stage and says, as a Canadian living in China, visiting America, I thought this whole country was a free speech zone. (laughs) And then proceeds to read from the Constitution. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Jake is doing the open mic. He's doing comedy. But he proceeds to read from the Constitution on stage. And, I mean, people were really listening. I mean, it was dead silent in there. Yeah. Well, it's quite a comeback to that room of Americans. Like, dang, this Canadian is sunning us right now. Well, it is true. I mean, it is so weird how it's like, you know, and and, and, and the moment you say something like this, people, but it's like, we're so careful about what we say now to not offend people. And, and then people, and then even myself, I'm like, listen, I just don't, I'm not trying to hurt people's feelings out here. You know what I mean? Like people are going through things. So if there's things they don't want me to say, I, I usually just avoid saying them, but it is weird how censored we've become. 
Mm. Um, so I, I like that he did it. Mm-hmm. That's what I like about comedy. Live comedy is one of the things where you still are free to to let loose a little bit. Um, you know, as, as long as you're not videoing, videoing it and putting it on the internet uh, in a room full of comedy fans, you're usually okay to say some fun stuff. Not that I ever really do too much of that, but once in a while something will come out that's funny and... I think it's well played by my brother, too, because it wasn't like he was going to go up there and crush the mic. I mean, he's not a comedian, but I believe that in stand up, especially you, you got you should be funny. But if you're not going to be funny, at least be interesting. Yeah. And I feel like my brother was interesting. And that's good. He was. He was. And plus, he had to follow me, so that must have been a tough oh, spot. Oh, he followed you? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. It must have been a tough spot. I like how my dad said to you the next day, he goes, so Dusty, uh, would all those people in that room have known you last night? <laughs> and then you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, you didn't really seem to get a very good uh, welcome or reaction. Yeah. What did he say? Or what? Yeah. Well, I guess he was expecting that, that you know, I'm in an open mic and... You know, and then I'm, you know, an established comedian. I think he thought when when they announced my name, people would really go, oh, Dusty's here. Let's cheer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's comics. I didn't expect a lot out of it. No, people weren't booing me. But, yeah, there's a lot of people that I've been doing open mics with for a long time in there. Mm -hmm. I don't do a lot of open mics anymore, but a lot of the people in that room, I've done comedy with a bunch of open mics, you know? Yeah. I like that they didn't really do that. Mm -hmm. I like... You know, because I used to really like the open mic scene. I like to do open mics. It's only because I'm just gone so much and I have a family that I don't do open mics now. You know, if I didn't have a family and, and it was just me and you, I'd probably still do mics. I question that because even when we didn't have kids, I was out doing mics, but you weren't doing mics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do mics more often, I think. Right, right. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, I think so. It was fun. I had a lot of fun at the East Room. Josh Lewis runs the open mic there, and I thought it was really good. Yeah. I liked what was happening in there. I always love doing mics. Mics are just grungy, and there's just so much bad comedy, but there's so many eclectic, interesting, rotten, but absurd characters. Yeah. Who aren't really characters, they're just people, and they yeah. seem like characters, because you're like, what is this right now on stage? Yeah. And that's open mics, and it's so fun. I mean, I took my brother-in-law, Rob, to an open mic when I first moved to Nashville. It was the Cult Fiction Underground, which was where I filmed, where I, where I recorded Making That Fudge, the album. and Classic. Um, but this was just an open mic. And Rob, being a, you know, a Christian man, you know, Rob will let loose, you know, and say some things. He'll even drop some F-bombs here and there just to be funny. But he had never really been to an open mic. I think people know about comedy or they go to the comedy club or they go see a famous comedian at a theater when they come to town. So they they just think that's what comedy is. And then you take them to an open mic where it's, you know, I'm, not everyone at an open mic's bad, but it is level one stand-up comedy. Now, you may have some various uh, people on different levels at the open mic, but 
anyone can do the open mic. And most open mics, all you have to do is show up, write your name down, and you can perform. You don't even, there's no qualifications needed. So anybody could be in there. It's the volunteer service. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I've been clean for a while. When I was in, you know, Charleston for a while, I would do some jokes that were a little edgier. I'd cuss a little more, but I've always been pretty clean, but I've really cleaned it up. And when I moved to Nashville, I was, you know, usually one of the cleanest ones at the mic. And that was always a fun thing for me to like really go up and crush being clean, but not talk about being clean. I'm just writing jokes. So... I took Rob in there because these mics would be so dirty. This this Cult Fiction Underground, I mean, it was a weird little spot. I loved it, but it was a weird little basement spot, and it would pack out because there was only like 50 seats, and, you know, 20 of them would be comics. And uh, But it was such a fun mic. But I just didn't think about taking Rob there. Mm-hmm. who had never seen these sorts of things and seen the kind of things people say, especially if you're Christian. It's like people go wild on Christians and open mics, you know, because it's the only religion you can make fun of. If you make fun of another religion, then you're a bigot. Uh, so people go wild. That's how they get edgy. And uh, uh, his mind was blown. I think he was shook up by it. Open mics are truly obscene. Yeah, They are obscene. They are vulgar. People are sharing stories and thoughts that there's nowhere else to put these thoughts. You have to say them as per joking into a mic. Like it's like you have to feign that this is all a joke, but some of it is truthful stories and some of it is the interior of some sick minds and it's shocking. And that's why it's fun. I mean, because that is what's fun about it is people come together, people from all corners, all walks of life. Mm. Um, and they, they gather together, uh, a lot of times just seeking friends and companionship or, or, you know, some form of a therapy session. Mm. I mean, I've seen people uh, confess things on stage that I'm like, I don't know that I would ever tell anyone that yep. that sort of stuff happened to me. And you're telling it into a microphone in front of people. Mm-hmm. But I do certain things like that, too. I get up on stage and sometimes say things um, uh, that I might not normally say. But you're like, I don't know, this is some tragic thing in my life. Maybe I can get a laugh out of it, mm-hmm. you know, because you're like, it, you know, and I, I think that's what happens to a lot of people. They go, hey, I want to tell you how weird I am. I want to show you how dumb I am. I want to show you how sick I am, yep. you know? Yep. And then they find camaraderie. Yeah. Yeah, it's there. It's catharsis. You You let out these things and you say, anybody else? Or can you put a humorous touch onto it i mean because there's irony everywhere you know you just got to put it together and then if you put it together out loud that's stand up baby <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it is i mean if yeah if you can if you can tell your weird sick twisted thing mm-hmm. and it get a laugh you're like i'm a comedian <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you know yeah but a lot of times people can't Right. So they just tell these basically sad stories mm. 
And then you go, dang. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of open micers, too. I think people get drawn in just by the community. I mean, you well, know. Yeah, absolutely. People are just like, dang, okay, now I got a crew. Now well, I can go do something on a Tuesday night. Well, right. It's a hobby that um, you just have to be be willing to get up in front of people. Mm-hmm. It's like... When I I was thinking about going to an AA meeting one time, and, and this guy was saying to me, he goes, if you go, you know, just be sure you talk, you know, because you have to stand up and you say, I'm, I'm dusty, I'm an alcoholic. Um, and I have done that. I didn't use AA to quit, but I did go to some meetings. I know that sounds confusing, but I, I, I went to meetings after I quit with other friends. But I would speak because they say when you speak, now you're a part of the group. You're not some outsider just hanging out in there. The moment you stand up and you say, I'm an alcoholic, then now you're one of the group. Um, so that's how stand-up is in a way. It's like if you could also join rec league soccer or rec league basketball or join some local softball team, but it requires more. Mm-hmm. Most people don't want to do that. They want to hang out in a bar and drink. So now they're like, oh, I can be a part of this stand-up club. Well, it's really a haven for the black sheep of this world. Yeah. You know, the outcasts and the misunderstood. And, of course, the hot girls. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that's what female comedians are, typically. <laughs> they're either hilarious lesbians or they're really attractive girls. <laughs> yeah. But when I was a stand-up, I just hung out with, like the outcasts i mean i just dated the low and the down and the out and i miss that yeah i've I've become really basic but i miss (laughs) hanging out with people that were just mad and angry and depressed and mentally disturbed i mean you just you just you know got down into a basement after a mic and just said that guy's not funny we'd i would have been part of that crew they said, remember when Dusty Slade went up on the mic? He's so overrated. Like, that would have been me. Yeah. That would have been me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, you know when, I, when I was first starting comedy, I mean, we were just hanging out. Just my buddies, we all did improv together, and then we would all go do an open mic, and we would all get, just get drunk. And it was a party, and we had quite a community of people hanging out. Mm-hmm. And it was really great. I mean, we would have a lot of the same in Charleston, a lot of the same people at all our mics, like audience members, you know, at mics and shows and like local celebrities. Yeah, because these people would go, oh, I like your new jokes or oh, that new joke was really funny. And it's like we had this great community where we would write jokes and then we would all talk about each other. We might not all go meet up, but. If, if my friend Andy goes up and tells some jokes and I think of a tag for him, I give him the tag. Mm-hmm. He may not take it, but, you know, we're, we're watching each other, uh, enjoying each other. Like, we were our favorite comics. Yeah, maybe that's why you don't do mics anymore because you don't really have, like, a local crew to kind of, like, chum around with. Yeah, you know? that's true. And I wouldn't be doing a lot of chumming around anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's no time to chum. No. That's sad. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, that's why it's nice on the road to have openers that I know. Sometimes I feel bad when I go to a town. Like, I just went to Kansas City, which was really great. 
and a guy uh, has hosted for me the last couple of times, Dustin Slintz, but he's also featured for me in the past. And I feel bad like rolling into town with features, but I just get used to booking features with me now mm -hmm. that it's like, and then Dustin can still hang out. And it's just nice to have, you go to a town, you like, you, 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 you know, people, and then you also have you're bringing people that you know so you at least have some sort of hang yeah i spent a long time on the road especially headlining where if the feature didn't hang or even when i was featuring if the headliner didn't hang i'm just hanging out there alone and i don't mind it but it's not the same yeah i don't mind hanging alone yeah i talk too much when i'm with people yeah yeah, yeah. You've really gotten into throat lozenges over the years. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and peppermints. Yeah. You know, you be coming home off the road being like, do I have COVID or did I just talk a lot? Yeah. I don't think about, I get your joke, but I don't think about COVID. You said that. You would say that more like last year. Yeah. Yeah. That's more of a last year kind of joke. Yeah. But, you know. I'm just bringing it back up. Yeah, but I had a great time in Kansas City. I know I, we, I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but the... um the open mic scene is great. I mean, I saw some of the weirdest stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I saw two men in their 30s both confess to being, well, maybe maybe mid to late 20s, early 30s, confess to being virgins on stage, right? One guy was a, you know, pretty uh, normal looking dude, very Christian, very religious, it all made sense. You're like, all right, this guy is uh, doing a good job and um, saving himself for marriage. And then the other guy probably bought, brought up religious, a little weirder, and you felt like when he said it, it wasn't because he was saving himself. It was because it he was trying and it wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. So when you see it, I mean, I was in the room because he had been around a while doing comedy in the Charleston scene, been around doing it. And everybody liked him. He was part of the crew, but he was never very good at comedy. In fact, at my open mic, I started putting him up dead last every time because I was like, you know what you're going to do up there. And it's not going to be good. <laughs> you get some laughs. We'll start working your way back up in the in the lineup. Mm -hmm. uh, but he he did that joke about being a virgin, and that room. I mean, you. It was. I don't know the word. The cringiest. It maybe is the word. Mm -hmm. The most uncomfortable mm -hmm. that it's ever been. Yeah. I mean, everybody in there was like, Ugh. yeah. Um, and it's just like. You just see people say things on stage and you're like, oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. I mean, I can't even tell you the things I've seen and and heard. I mean, one of my good friends, I mean, I've told you this before and I won't get into too many details because it's, you know, a trigger warning. It's it's sad. But a good friend of mine back in Toronto, I mean, he went through some horrific abuse when he was a child and I'll tell you what, he had about 20 minutes on it. Gosh. And sometimes it would do okay. <laughs> yeah. But most of the time, it just broke everyone's heart in the room. Yeah. And then it just, the bit kept going. 
And it was sad yeah. and dark because there's things that are very hard to make funny. And, uh, you know, I once heard someone say, and I believe it's true. They're like, you can talk about anything you want on, <clears throat> on stage, but the audience has to know that you're okay. <laughs> oh yeah. So yeah. if you're not okay with this abuse, which he wasn't right, then the Who audience, yeah. Then the audience is not okay. And so it was just, it just killed rooms. So people kind of stopped booking him and, uh, he, he had some troubles, you know, after that. Yeah. But I mean that, that I'll never forget, you know, you, when you see that, Oh, and I would see him do it all the time. We did gigs together all the time. We went out of town. We did road trips. I mean, me and him were tight. I mean, his girlfriend and me were roommates for a long time. I, me and my boyfriend and him were best friends. I mean, gosh, I really connected with this guy, but man, he was going at stand up in a in a lost way. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like someone will watch, I don't know, for lack of a better example, Louis C.K. on stage. Yeah. And, and he'll be this real confessional type comedian talking about really sick stuff in his life. Mm -hmm. But he's like it it like we're seeing him and I don't know. I don't know Louis C.K. all along the way in his journey, but I'm imagining that we're seeing him after he's gotten funny by years of working the craft, and now he's so good, he's able to make things that the normal person can't make funny. He's able to make it funny. Well, you hit the nail right on the head because when we started stand-up, and I'll say this is like for me about 2011, Louis C.K. was it. He was the guy. He was the king, and he continued to ascend and be the king of comedy for several years in the 2010s or whatever. And many people just took a page out of Louis C.K. and being like, oh, I'm just going to talk, talk all about my dark life and my dark choices and my family. And so he truly was sort of the standard of what we thought we could follow in. And I think it was really like, it, it really misguided myself and, and my friend, like, because I would talk about, you know, my family members in, in a car accident that killed my mom and brother. And I would always try to talk about that on stage and it never worked. I mean, because it's so sad. It's so but sad. But for some reason, I just thought I had to make it my thing. But it's like, that's not, it's not like, oh, my parents are divorced. It's like, oh, that's horrific. You don't even hear that very often. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just, and it's just, it's not like child abuse, but it's, it's in the same kind of vein that it's like, it's very difficult to bring that to an audience and not like bring them down. I mean, the, at the end of the day, people are coming to a stand-up show to like let loose and forget about their troubles. And then all of a sudden you're like, let me unleash this trauma on you. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? So, so Louis CK was able to do this because he, he had worked for so long at becoming funny mm -hmm. and then he found his own way. Mm -hmm. to do these things. Yeah. And people are not finding their own way. They're trying to go Louis CK's way. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not working. I mean, there was a, a Mitch Hedberg phase that everyone was in for a while when I was mm -hmm. doing comedy where I was in that phase for a while where everyone was doing one liners mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and then there, you know, there was a real Doug Stanhope phase where yeah. everyone was getting real and wasted. The New York guy. Oh, who's that? 
Um, Bill he, Burr? No. Oh. Well, yeah, Bill Burr still probably some people, but no, he's like, he's like, I went to the shop the other day and, and he was kind of like a little like edgy and racial. Oh, Louis Black? No. Oh gosh. Amy Schumer, like for a minute named her kid after him. Oh my gosh. He's like, he, he did, he did, um, a couple different TV shows in the nineties and two thousands. Gosh, what was his name? I don't know. Oh man. I'm totally blind. There was also a Rory Scoville phase for a lot of Southern comics. Sure. Where they would uh, just, because Rory Scoville is so great and so funny at just riffing and going all over the place. Yeah. And doing weird things that a lot of yeah. people just thought they could a do that. A lot of people did that. And it's like, just focus on writing some jokes first. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and then try to see. You know, if you can. So I, I don't know who you're talking about with the uh, Anthony Jeselnik. No, but that was that was a thing, too. Yeah, he had a real face. I'm going to find it, but just keep talking. Well, um, you know, so uh, I don't even know where we're at now. But I, so I'm just going to say I went to Kansas City this weekend. I went to the Kansas City Improv. I've been there a bunch of times. I love to go there. And it was a lot of fun. We did four shows. A lot of great people came out. A lot of people that listen to this podcast. A lot of people that listen to the Nate Land podcast. A lot of people from Netflix. Uh, A whole family. Or I don't know if they were a family. But they were a group of people. All bought and wore their own wolf shirts to the show. So I had a, a, a crew of wolf shirts. That was a lot of fun. I got gifts from people. I got hats from people. Um, I appreciate all the gifts. People give me gifts at shows all the time and notes and letters and things like that. And I never read them on the podcast or show them on social media, but I do appreciate all them. It's very nice. And it's not that big of a deal about this I know, this it's guy. making me so mad that I yeah, can't think of him. Yeah, but let's let though. it go, though. Okay. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. And um, so it was a really great time. And um, I love Kansas City. I think it's a lot of fun. Hannah, Hannah said that she really likes Kansas City as well. Yeah. We did a show there years ago. Now, my first time there, I probably talk about it every time I talk about Kansas City, but I had... Uh, David Tell. Oh, Dave Attell. Dave Attell. Okay. A lot of people tried to imitate him. Oh, yeah. It just came to me. But um, the first time I worked this Kansas City Improv, I was very new to doing this kind of comedy. It was 2015. And, you know, I had just gone full-time in 2014. And so I was just featuring, and I got some gigs, and I was opening for Ari Spears, a guy who I'd previously only known from Mad TV. It was very exciting. Um, But I had also heard bad things. Even the booker who booked me on the show goes, he may fire you, uh, but if he does, no big deal. Um, So, um, and and then I took Hannah. I was... um, I didn't really, I feel like if I were featuring now, I may not take my girlfriend everywhere with me. But at the time, I don't know. I didn't even think about it. I was like, she's a comic. We're traveling. We're just doing our thing. But I took Hannah. And so they picked us up from the hotel. And me and Hannah got in the backseat. And, well, we were all just hanging out talking to the driver, uh, waiting for Aries to come down. And we were all laughing, having a good time. 
I mean, it was just a great time. And then Aries came down and seemed to be in such a bad mood that we all just got silent, basically, and got in the car. Mm -hmm. Aries got in the front seat, the driver got in, and me and Hannah got in the back. And then we rode for about 10 minutes, 15 maybe, to the club from the hotel. And it was, you know, a modern car. So if you don't fasten your seatbelt in the front seat, it dings. Ding, 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 ding. And Aries would not put his seatbelt on. And we all rode in silence in the car, just listening to that seatbelt ding the whole time. And, um, but the weekend was awesome. I had a great time there. Me and Hannah went back another time. This is a story I like to tell. We, 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 we put together a run of shows and we did one night headlining. I headlined the Kansas City Improv way back, like a Tuesday night or something. And Hannah featured for me. And, um, <laughs> but we did a bar show uh, the night before and Hannah opened for me there too. And Hannah really crushed, right? And I did okay. Right? And I was the headliner and Hannah, Hannah was the feature. And I, I, she really crushed. And I did okay. And then that, that night we get in the car and she gets mad at me. She goes, you got to do better. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, if, you, if I'm going to be opening for you, you got to do better. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm so lovable. <laughs> Uh, but you did, to be fair, you pretty much always did better than me after that. Well, I had to step it up. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I had to step it up. <laughs> I'll pick a fight over anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Most people try to comfort someone when they don't have a good set, but I'm like, shape up, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're embarrassing me. <laughs> I wasn't even in America. I wasn't even living in America yet. I was, or maybe I was, maybe I was living there. You might've been living there by yeah. then. Yeah. <laughs> But not the first Aerie Spears trip. No. No, that was fun. Yeah, that first year I was working the improvs. You were coming down a lot. Well, I think you were bringing me around because I was impressed by it all. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like the first, when I first met you, you were just, and I don't know, this is no diss to waiters, but you were just a server. You were just a waiter. And I was like, okay. And then next time you came around, you're like, I've been on Last Comic Standing and I'm opening at all these clubs and I'm opening for so-and-so. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm working it out here. Yeah, you certainly were. It's always, you know, you're always just working and, and, and trying to get to the next level. That's what, that is my biggest frustration with a lot of comics at the open mics is there are very funny people that will always stay at open mic level because they're not putting in the work. It's like you got to be writing stuff all the time and you got to be putting yourself out there. You got to be putting yourself in different situations. Uh, that was the great thing about doing comedy in Charleston is there was no comedy club. So I had to put myself in many various situations, doing bad gigs at co the college of Charleston, um, you know, do opening for my buddies bands um, you know, you took many trips. You went to New York for a month. Yeah. And MC, like, well, that was later, but yeah, I mean, towards the end. Yeah. But towards the end of my time in Charleston, I was doing a lot of trips. I mean, when I was in Charleston, after I got back from New York, I booked myself a two week run, um, where I, I just lined up open mics and, um, all over the Southeast. You know, I went from Charleston to uh, Atlanta to, I think, uh, Nashville. I don't think I had anything in between there, but I did Atlanta. What about Charlotte? 
well, I did Atlanta, Nashville, and then Knoxville, and then um, North Carolina, like 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 Raleigh. Okay. Uh, and then Charlotte, and then back to Charleston. Uh, but I stayed in Nashville a few days um, when I came on that trip. I had some friends that lived here, and I got hooked up. on. I had met some Nashville people at a show in Charleston. I I hosted an event for them in Charleston, three comics. I think it actually was James Austin Johnson, who's now on Saturday Night Live, who's doing quite well for himself, and Gary Fletcher and a lady named Jane Borden. And Jane had already moved to L.A. by the time I came through Nashville. But we, we had a great time hanging and doing those shows together or doing that show together in Charleston. So when I came to Nashville, she, Jane really hooked me up, set me up with a bunch of gigs. But I also got hooked up with the Zanies gig that weekend and really was my first ever club that I did. I, I did an um, open mic at the Laughing Skull in Atlanta. And then I got a call saying, hey, can you, I got a gig for you. At my Actually, my former manager got me a gig at Zany's. And I was supposed to do 20 minutes clean opening for, I guess, featuring for Pablo Francisco. And I had never done a club. I showed up at Zany's um, and uh, that they showed, somebody showed up. I never seen this anytime ever since then. But the manager came in and he goes, hey, can you, uh, he said the host didn't show up. Can you host? Uh, so I'm like doing like 30 now clean, but I could do it. So that's why I'm always telling people like, like be able to do it. Uh, it seems so foolish to not be able to do it because had I said, you know, no, I can only be dirty. Then I probably would have lost the gig. You know, but anyway, so I go out that door at Zany's, walk out on that stage. It's sold out, hot show, crushed it. I mean, crushed it. I'm driving back to Atlanta the next day, and I am just buzzing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it feels good. There's an auspicious energy about you. It feels good. Mm -hmm. And I get back. Something's about to happen. Yeah, I mean, it just felt good. So then I had to go back to Atlanta because I'd, I'd lined up three Atlanta shows, but then I got this offer to do Nashville. So I drove from Atlanta to Nashville, back to Atlanta. Then I did my other show in Atlanta. And then I drove back to Nashville where I would stay for a few days and do a, a show uh, hosted by Chad Ryden. That was my first official show uh, in the Nashville comedy scene. I think it was his Spiffy Squirrel show that he would do for a long time at the East Room, but it wasn't quite at the East Room yet. Um, and uh, I remember Mary J. Berger and Paulina Combo working the door. And then I did comedy pug hugs with Mary J. and, and Paulina. And then I did Gary Fletcher's show at, at, at somewhere in the Gulch. It was just a good run, but I, I was just putting myself in all these positions. I'm just like, I'm doing... I mean, Gary's show was, I forget the name of the place. It's a pretty popular place in, in the Gulch, but his open mic was standing in between two pool tables on the floor. I mean, it was not, but it was great. I was like, this is awesome. Pug Hugs was awesome. Chad Show was awesome. Um, and and then I went out to North Carolina. I did, I did side splitters in Knoxville before they closed. I did that open mic 
Um, and the, the point of these, oh, I did the stardome in Birmingham. That was another one I did. But the point of all these mics was to try to get the club to see me. In, you know, if I did a mic at the club, try to get the club manager to see me and then book me some t somewhere. So I did side splitters in Knoxville and I showed up, got on the list. And then the manager or whoever it was found out that the club was closing. And this was the last open mic they were ever going to do. So she was reading the lineup to us while she was crying. And so we were like, all right, well, this was a useless trip. So I just did the mic, um, and it was great. Mm. And then, kind of a downer note to an epic. Uh, well, run. but that's kind of suiting. I like it, it is. Like that. But well, you know, I went out to it's Chapel humbling. Hill. I got out there. I okay. did it. I was feeling sick. I did an open mic. The next day, I was. I got a, my own hotel, and the next day, I was still so sick. I ended up buying another night in the hotel, which killed all my profit for the for the run because I had to get two hotels. I had planned to stay with a buddy, but I was starting to feel sick, so I was like, "I'm just going to get a hotel." And then I ended up getting it for two nights. Missed a mic somewhere because I was feeling. And then I, I, I by the next day though, I was like, "All right, I'm feeling pretty good." So I went to Charlotte, North Carolina, to the Comedy Zone and entered a contest called Fight Night, where everybody got three minutes uh and then you 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 get first second or third if you want to move on to the next round so i was still recovering from being sick but i went i did the mic i placed third so i got enough to move on to the next round so by the time i went back to do my next round a couple of weeks down the road i was completely well healed up and then i won first place overall and then I, uh, I got a booking out of that. I got my first feature weekend from the Comedy Zone out of that. And I went open for Josh Blue at the Comedy Zone. Mm. That was my first ever official feature weekend. But it was all because I did that run. I established some contact with the club. You were also sober. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because people are out here working, but they're, they're also just kind of sweaty. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, just, you know, it's like if I go to a club somewhere and nobody knows who I am, I don't even really try to talk to people until I do well on stage. Yeah, you've always said that. Yeah, it's pointless. Yeah. You go to an open mic, you're like trying to make friends with people before the mic. Just be nice, be polite. And then if you crush it, everybody will be your friend. Yeah. If you do okay, you'll still make some friends. Right. If you bomb, just get out of there. If you bomb, go talk to the other guy that bombed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's better advice. Yeah, <laughs> heck yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, totally. It's been quite a journey. Well, comedy's fun. I mean, in the open mic scene is is really great, and and and, and being at the East Room uh, made me miss it a little bit. Where I'm yeah. like, you know what, this is fun. It's just down and dirty. Yeah, just being in the. You know, in the grind. But and you can't get too comfortable there because you can get too comfortable in that open mic scene. And I think that's where why people stay in it because you got to yes. elevate yourself out of it. You got to you got to get rejection. You got to you got to risk being um, exposed to industry that may or may not like you. You know, you got to play that game, baby. Well, it's like uh, somebody said this too that 
people and I and I, I can attest to this, but people that do a lot of open mics will go do a comedy club and the people won't laugh at them and they'll go, Club people don't like my comedy. Right. And they're like, Oh, you mean people, regular people. Cause that's who's in the club is regular people. And that's who you need to make laugh if you're gonna have a career working the road. Of course, there is the alternative. You move to New York or LA, you impress the industry and you succeed some other way. But if you just want to be a comic, it's like you got to be able to make people at the club laugh. Right. I mean, if you become ultra famous because of the internet and people in your shows sell out, all they want to do is take a picture with you anyway. And you could ride uh, bad comedy going viral on the internet for at least a few years, make a bunch of money, put it in your pocket, walk out of there. But how much better would it be to go viral, bring all those people to your show, make them laugh, and then they go, wow, I want to come see that guy year after year after year. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean. Yep. But hey, there's an avenue for all types these days. God bless the internet. Well. And God bless stand-up comedy. Yeah. And I'm on this weekend, I'm going to Miami, Florida, to the Miami Improv. Mm. I've never been to Miami. I passed through Miami on the way to Key West in, in around 2008 or sometime, sometimes six or seven maybe. Um, but I've never been. I'm looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to going and just, you know, because I did West Palm Beach one time and I hated it. I didn't really express how much I hated it, but I said it was not a good time mm. on the podcast. And then, you know, a year or so later, I got to go back and I was not looking forward to it. And I had a great time. Yeah. Whenever I venture into a new area or new part of the country, I never know how, how my comedy is going to go. You know, and it's always, and so, you know. Because you don't, you've not left the South in terms of where you live. Live, no. You've been here the whole time. Yeah. And Miami is, I mean, it is the South, but uh, geographically, but is it is its own. Yeah, it's Cuba. Yeah, it is its own thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see. Right. How the comedy goes. Yeah. Well, we'll, we're interested in hearing that report when you get on back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. But I am excited. So if you live around the area, make the trip. Even if you're not that close, make the trip mm -hmm. just to make me feel better. Yeah. And uh, it'll be fun. So what has been circulating on the internet lately? Oh, well, all right. So I want to talk about this. I do want to play the whole song. Um but I, I think I might just kind of work it into, um, you know, I might just edit it in. Um, but I want to talk about this song by this guy named Oliver Anthony. And maybe I'll play it just here just so that we have a, a timestamp for it. Um, I'm sure that you've seen this, um, this song. If you're on the internet at all, you've seen this song because um, it's really made its way. And now the guy's starting to generate some heat, uh, both positive, very positive heat, but also some negative heat too. Um, but I love the song. 
And now I, I've steered clear of it at first. I saw it on the internet and I saw the description farmer sing song that blows away. And I'm just like, I, I can't do another one of these viral moments uh, of things. It, it never appeals to me. I hate trendy things. I hate when something is trending and everybody comments on it. I'm guilty of getting involved in it, but I hate it. I don't like, I mean, when I was in high school, I loved Limp Biscuit, And then the song, I did it all for the Nookie came out. And then suddenly everybody loved Limp Biscuit, And I was like, oh, now I don't like it. Of course, I kept listening to them, but it upset me. Yeah, we didn't watch Tiger King on principle. Yes, exactly. We don't get into the viral things. I haven't seen any of those shows. Breaking Bad was the last big popular show that I've watched like that. I just don't like it. Mm-hmm. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to listen to the song just to see what all the hype is about. And I love this song. I mean, I'm I'm a pretty, um, you know, um, anti-government kind of guy. I mean, I, I, I like government. I appreciate that we have it. But I'm, I'm anti a lot of the things that are going on with it on both sides. And so when I and, and, and from a perspective uh, of a guy that grew up poor, uh, that also still has a has a lot of, you know, poor to, you know, I don't know, I say some lower middle class relatives that I see work hard, that I see struggle with things. Uh, I know firsthand how hard it can be for people out here in the country in certain situations. I know what it's like to work a full time job that I don't like just to get off work at the end of the day and drink until I pass out uh, just to get up and do it all over again because I don't even understand what I'm doing with my life. I'm just going to work, as some people call it, a wage slave where you're just out here working for money just so you can pay bills, just so you can live day to day and you don't really know what's going on. Um, I've been there. So when I heard this song, it just blew me away. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And what even what what I even liked about it more is the backstory of the guy, that the guy is not a famous singer. He's not signed by someone. He didn't he didn't just get picked up and suddenly now he has a big hit. Um, some something out of Virgi- West Virginia, uh, some country station out of West Virginia came to him and they try to elevate a lot of musicians in the area and he came to his very poor city very poor county and brought him a microphone and a camera and filmed this song and he he said i listened to him talk about it he said you know this is before the song came out he goes i hope it can you know generate a little heat and so i'll play the song right now i've been selling my soul working all day Overtime hours for bullshit pay So I can sit out here and waste my life away Drag back home and drown my troubles away It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to For people like me, people like you Wish I could just wake up and it not be true But it is, oh it is, living in the new Rich men, North or Richmond, Lord knows it all. Just wanna have. 
I just find that song to be amazing. I listened to it on Sunday. I listened to it on Saturday when I when I really kind of found it. Um, most of the day, I bought it on iTunes. I don't know when the last time I bought a song on iTunes. I just wanted to support this guy in some way. Um, and then I uh, on Sunday on my way home, uh, I could not stop listening to this song in the airport. I would just listen to it. And then I would reset it, and then I would listen to it again. I just kept kept it on repeat, and I just could not get enough. Now, the negative stuff that people are focusing on is the welfare thing, where he says, people in the street ain't got nothing to eat uh, while the obese are milking welfare. God, if you're five foot three, over 300 pounds, taxes ought not pay for your bag of fudge rounds. Right. I mean, that's what people focus on. And they say it's being really negative on welfare. But the way I heard it when I listened to it was like, this guy's not anti-welfare. He's not anti-obesity. Uh, you know what I mean? He's not he's not criticizing people for being fat. I mean, my my take was just like, here's a guy that's working all day. He's got no money. And then he's seeing people it probably in his own personal life, it sounded very specific. So it feels like even in his, his own personal life, he's just seeing it. He's seeing himself struggle, not on welfare, and then people um, who, who are on welfare eating pretty dang good. 
you know? And I just think that's what he's saying. I mean, and I don't know what's behind it all. This is just my interpretation of it. So I didn't see it that bad. I mean, because I've seen lots of people on TikTok talk about it and say, you know, that they know people on welfare, people that really do need it. And I don't think anybody is criticizing people that really need it. But I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we know that there are people that figure out ways to take advantage of the system. Uh, I've seen it in my own life. I mean, I know people that, you know, you can give them money to try to help them out. And they'll, instead of using that money to help themselves out, they'll go buy something with that money uh, as if they've just received free money. Like my friend's sister, she once had a car. He told me that the car was so expensive. They got behind in the payments. They couldn't make the payments. And then they had a car accident. It totaled the car. So they were free and clear of these cars, car payments. And they got a bunch of money from it. And they took that money and bought an even more expensive car, right? There's people that cannot help themselves. So it's like, and if people live recklessly like that, that's their business. But I think his point is, I'm broke. My dollar is taxed to no end already. And now people on the receiving end of that are, are taking advantage of the system. That, that's it. But, you know, the, but the, you know, they'll criticize that small little part. And Hannah made the point to me, you know, it's art. Sometimes art offends people. And that's okay. And I agree. Uh, I, I also want to say, because it just occurred to me as you were breaking that that lyric down, how close is um, the singer, the artist, to this uh, five foot three, 300 pound person in terms of class? Well, they're basically the same. They're poor people, right? So maybe his distress at seeing someone um, abuse the system is that he's very close to doing that himself. You know, the, yeah. those, those two people are not so far away in their uh, class and in their walk in life. And he's made the choice to not go on welfare and to work, you know, probably multiple jobs and still not have much to show for it. And then he sees this other person. I mean, it's, it's pretty common to kind of hate what's similar to you, you know? Yes. I mean, you know, and it's even like, um, when I was younger, I never stole a lot of things, but I always had this mentality with corporations that, oh, well, it's just, you know, if you steal from the corporation, it doesn't matter. They're, they're a major corporation. They're not going to notice a little something stolen from them. But my mom told me, you know, she's like, well, it's not about them. It's about all the other people out here that won't steal, that aren't going to steal. And now you're like, you know, you're just right. taking advantage of right. that. You're, you're, you know, honest people can't get those things, but someone that honest people with no money can't get those things, but you would just steal it. And also. Yeah. Um, it's like, because everybody has weak and strong parts of themselves. Right. And some people are really good at covering up their weak parts uh, but everybody has them. So let's say this person that's 300 pounds, five foot three. Okay, well, their weakness is obvious, right? They're overweight, they're overeating, they're on welfare, right? Their, their right, weakness is overtaking them, but maybe- It's not know, so easy to see other people's addictions. Right, but then yeah. he sees that that person abusing the system 
And, you know, he resents it because he's probably tempted to abuse the system and his self. Why wouldn't you want to if you're working multiple jobs and you're still poor and just getting by? You're right. like, well, I want to eat fudge rounds, but I want to fight that. And it's like you you push back against what you see other people doing because you don't want to let that weakness out yourself. And that, that and the whole verse there, it just gets overlooked because this becomes the focal point. But he says, I wish that politicians looked out. So he's, all the blame is on the politicians. And I think it should be um, because, you know, people also can get caught in a welfare trap where they're like, you know, they're caught in this place where it's like, maybe they don't want to be on welfare, but they're like, I need it right now, um, you know, to help me. And then, and then if they progress a little bit at their job and make a little extra money, then they lose those welfare benefits. And then, um, the, the, the byproduct of losing the benefits makes the raise that they got at their work cause them to actually lose money. And then, so they're, they're like, well, I don't want to lose that. So it can kill motivation. And then it also, if a politician is being like, I'm going to give you this, then you're like, well, I want to vote for that guy. Cause I want to keep this going. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't even want to keep it going, you're like, I need to keep it going. So I'm going to vote for the guy who says he's going to keep it going for me. So his whole blame is on politicians. Yeah. His, his grind, his ax to grind is the system. Right. It's not some fat dude. Right. And, um, but, and I've seen some fat guys on TikTok, uh, having a lot of fun with this lyric, like in a fun way. I see, I saw a fat dude, he was like eating fudge rounds and that as this lyric plays and then he like knocks over the, he's like grooving to it. And then this lyric hits and he <laughs> knocks over the camera. Right. I think it's really funny, but yeah. this whole verse, he says, I wish politicians uh, and I may not get it exactly right, cared about minors and not just minors on an island somewhere, mm -hmm. which is like, whoa. He's not saying he doesn't care about those kids, but he's talking about something that nobody wants to talk about. Uh, and then he says, um, uh, f uh, people in the street ain't got nothing to eat while the obese are milking welfare. And it's like, you know, the line before people in the street ain't got nothing to eat. I mean, how many homeless people are in this country? How many, how many kids are in this country that, that don't get food every day uh, because their parents don't make enough money, even if they're on welfare? How, how many kids go without food every day? Somebody was just telling me, oh, uh, you know, I don't want to say who, but somebody was telling me about working a case um, and you know, the, they show up and the kid, they ask the kid, you know, they're supposed to take the kid away. And they're like, what'd you have for breakfast today? And the kid's like, oh, the same as every day. And he's like, well, what is that? And he goes, a cup of coffee, you know, like grown people can drink coffee for breakfast if they want, but that's their own choice. But if that's all your kids get, and he said, he said it was like an eight year old kid. It's all very sad out here. And so people aren't talking about that. And then he says, um, Young men are putting themselves six feet in the ground because um, all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. And suicide in this country is out of control. I mean, it is so high and go goes up all the time. Suicide by our veterans. Our veterans commit suicide every day, like at astronomical numbers. Um, and uh, it just doesn't seem like anybody's talking about it. Politicians are never talking about it. Um, and it's like, you know, if you're working a blue collar job 
and, you know, inflation, things keep getting more expensive, but you're not getting raises, uh, then that make, means your money's less valuable. You have less buying power. I know how much it costs to get groceries. You know how much it costs. You get a few things at the grocery store, especially if you're trying to eat healthy. If you try to buy organic fruits and things like that, next thing you know, your bill's a hundred bucks and you're like, I just dropped in for some grapes real quick. Um, and so if you're not making very much money and you got a family, even harder, and so nobody talks about that line. That line is the most powerful line in the whole song. Young men are putting themselves six feet in the ground because all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. And it's like, yeah, there's no respect for the workers. The People have no, I mean, all the people during COVID that lost their businesses, lost their livelihoods because they were made to stay at home. Meanwhile, they might be renting a building and the the landlord's still charging rent and you almost can't blame the landlord. They probably got bills of their own. Um, but it's like just not being allowed to work. Um, it, it's just like, it's hitting people hard. And I think that's why this song is blowing up because mm -hmm. country music is garbage now. I mean, I love country music more than any other music by a long shot. But the music that's being put out, all, I mean, we were told this Jason Aldean song was supposed to be, you know, oh, this is the hot new song, but it's like, it's a nothing song. There's nothing to it. it and it also is, you know. It's empty. It's empty. And it's, it's sung by a millionaire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's promoting, you know, it's still. It's like not in my small town, Franklin, Tennessee. <laughs> right. The richest <laughs> county in Tennessee. Right. What are y'all going to do? Go have a dang tupperware party or something <laughs> and it's also what small towns i mean small towns are falling apart all have you even been to a small town lately they're not doing well they're on drugs yeah i mean i i'm i'm from they're a, missing their teeth I'm they're shopping a, at the dollar general i mean my dad lives in a really small town and every time i turn around i hear about somebody else ODing and something else going on i mean Everything is falling apart. There's no community in this country. There's barely any uh, any love out here. I mean, you know, when I'm doing shows and people come to my shows, uh, it's nothing but love. And I'm yeah. seeing great people come together. And I'm seeing people from all walks of life. And and I and I love it. And I think it's awesome. But I I just feel like when he also another line he says for people like me, and he's, you know, pointing to himself, obviously saying people like me and then people like you. I took that to mean anybody that's listening to this song and it's resonating with you. I'm talking about you. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no uh, it's. Well, it's like especially even just the Internet, people that are discovered on the Internet. There's such great production value and the people are taking music lessons and then with Nashville and country musicians it's also branded and calculated and they got managers and teams and people pushing them through the system and onto radio and mainstream music that you know audiences just become desensitized but then all of a sudden when you actually hear something that is like a cry out of the wilderness the yeah. depths and the belly of the dark side of America of just blue collar working class person saying this is what it is right now for me yeah. and he's just one person he's just one story so of course he's not going to reflect everyone's experience 
but you can't take away what what he's what he thinks, what he feels, what he sees. Right, and and a lot of people are criticizing him right now for the people that have come out to support him. It's like you're going to be mad at the guy uh, because someone else says I like him. Someone that you don't like says I like him. And uh, well, you could argue that's why you know people hated Donald Trump was because of who his supporters were. Yeah, but the um, he. Um, He says, rich men north of Richmond, Lord knows they all just want, uh, Lord knows they want total control. I don't know. All just want total control, want to know what you think, want to know what you do. uh, And and they think you don't know, but I know that you do, something like that. But it's like, after what we went through with COVID, who doesn't believe that our government just wants total control? I mean, they just want, uh, anytime any politician left or right, wants to make a new law, they've lost me. Mm-hmm. You know, the moment someone wants to make a new law, I'm like, we don't need a new law. Right. You know, we got enough laws. Mm-hmm. There's too many laws out here already. We don't need it. There's more laws. I, I'm told, I mean, I'm told basically there's so many laws on the books. They could arrest you for a law that you didn't even know existed and it be legal because the laws in the books. And anyway, I just think the song is great. I love it. I hate trends. I've seen people say, oh, this is a psyop. This guy is an industry plant um, and all these things. And believe me, I'm first to jump on that bandwagon. But but I'm also like, when something is ultra popular, I listen to it. If it's not good, then I'm out. But this is good. And and I'm into it. And, and we're not endorsing the man. We don't know. I have who no idea who is. this guy is. Maybe he's got some dang disgusting skeletons in the closet. But I'm always supporting the song. The song is the song. And you and know that's what? what we're talking about. And he had a concert. And before he uh, did the concert, which is which he did an outdoor event, he said last year I did this event. There was 20 people here this year. There were thousands. Um and he read the Bible before he did it, which I fully support. I'm, I'm on board. Um, and then, um, yeah, but I don't know. I just think it's really great. I love it. I don't think he's an industry plant. I don't feel anything shady about it. I mean, a lot can change in a week these days. I may come back next week and go, hey, I was wrong about this. But I'll tell you what, though, the song is still great. Yeah, only time will tell. Even if we find out the guy's a serial killer, mm. the song is still good. You mm. know what I mean? It doesn't yeah. change. Like, you know, uh, you know. Uh, but um, I think it's great. And I sent it to my sister, and she said uh, she thought she thought it was pretty sad. And she, she said to me, you know, and we have to remember that the Bible says things are going to get bad. Uh, and I wanted to read some of Matthew 24. I'm not going to do it, but I wanted to. Oh, okay. I'm not going to do it, but I wanted to. But if, uh, I mean, I just think that um, it's, um, you know, it, it feels like something to me that everybody knows about because I've known about it for a while, but maybe they don't. But it's just like basically Matthew 24 is his disciples asking him about what the end times will look like. And he begins to describe it. Um, And, you know, 
I, I just think it's uh, really great, and I think it's worth wa- reading. Um, and it is just a reminder. I mean, it talks about, you know, it says earthquakes in, in diverse places. You know, it says for nation in the end, it says for nation shall rise against nation, uh, which I'm told nation means basically like, you know, not necessarily race, but like different cultures of people clashing against each other. And I think we see that happening kingdom against kingdom. I think we see that happening. There shall be famines and pestilence. So famines, disease, and earthquakes in diverse places. And we do see that. But we also see a lot of other bad weather patterns that are all just, you know, we're always just told it's climate change. And maybe it is. Um, But, you know, we're starting, we are seeing these things unfold. And we have for a while. But it says all these are the beginning of sorrows. So that doesn't mean it's the end. But then the next line says, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. So, you know, there's a time coming and it, you know, where, uh, you know, basically Jesus says that people will be killed and hated for him. Um, so I think, you know, in a lot of ways we can already see hatred, um, but, you know, thankfully, at least in this country, no one's being killed for their religion, which is nice. Um, but I just think it's worth a read. I don't mean it to be a downer at the end, but I just think it's a good reminder. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff happening. What's happening in Hawaii is really terrible. Um, regardless of what, I mean, I've seen a lot of theories out there about Hawaii and regardless of what you believe, it's really awful. I mean, at least a hundred people had been killed last I heard really terrible stuff, awful, awful stuff. Um, but that's why. This song, I think, resonates with so many people. And I mean, I'm talking, I'm on, I'm not talking about the the talking heads uh, of media. I'm talking, I'm on TikTok and I'm just seeing person after person duetting this song, sharing this song, uh, sharing their feelings about it. I've seen people write other verses to the song. Uh, And it's like people are like, yeah, finally someone speaking about us. I mean, country music is supposed to be the music of the common man. And, you know, it's like the last like they had that Luke Bryan and some other guy had a song called Buy Dirt, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's got a pretty good feel to it. But it's like it's not really getting it's just a feel good song. Not everybody can afford to buy land. It's not going to happen for everybody. So it's like, it's just nice to see uh, someone really speak to regular people. I know. And I feel like the anger at the corporate class or the, you know, 1%, that should be bipartisan. I mean, liberals left, people on the left, I thought their whole thing is they're mad at the rich guy and they want to tax the rich and they want to go like to me, that's what that anthem is all about is just the frustration of uh, people that cannot get out from the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. You know, and I wanted to say this, I forgot to say this, but when I was on the plane on Sunday, this was happening to me. I listened to this song so much that it really started to change the way I was viewing everyone around me. On Sunday while I was traveling, I mean, I travel so much that I get so irritated with everything everybody does. I'm pretty good at 
uh, holding myself back and not actually saying things. But I'm so annoyed. I'm annoyed at how fast someone's walking. I'm annoyed with uh, what I hear people say or what they're wearing or what they're doing or how they conduct themselves. I'm always just irritated because I'm just traveling so much. But after listening to this song, I just was like, um, I just started to think, you know, I don't know what any of these people's lives are like. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what they just left. I don't know what they're just, they're going back to. I don't know what their financial situation's like. I don't know what their home life's like. I don't know what kind of tragedy they might've just went through. I don't know anything about anyone around here. Even I'm back in the Admirals Club. I found a way to buy some, use my points to work my way back in there. And it's like, when you see people working in, in like a nicer area of the airport, they can seem a little snooty at times, right? But you're like, you don't know what their life's like they just work in a place i remember being intimidated by a bank manager when i was you know 25 trying to get a car loan to buy buy a car and now i like know some bank managers and i'm like they're just regular working people too with families we're all just trying to get by out here doing the best we can and it just made me feel better and i think focusing on this little welfare part of the song is causing people not to come together. I don't think it's a right-wing song. I don't think it's a left-wing song. I just think it's a good song for the working class to come together and realize that our enemy is not each other. Mm. Yes, sir. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. I mean, I've seen plenty of people of different races on TikTok duetting this song, championing this song. This is not some right-wing white man song. This is a song that the working class should really, really be able to get behind. I even saw a rap, uh, like a guy did a, you know, uh, um, what would you call it when when there was like a guest appearance on a rap song? Uh, Featuring? Yeah, maybe, but it would be like, you know, you'd it'd be a, a remix and it'd be like, normally it's just ludicrous. And then all of a sudden here comes big boy and you're like, oh, anyway, that's what this guy, <laughs> this a guy did a bit uh, for this song too. And it's just like, I don't know. I just love it. I can't get enough of it. I think it's great. I've not been so excited about a song in a long time. It's great. So anyway. All right. You got anything else, Hannah? Mm, nope. Okay. We're having a good time. Thank you. 